You are listening to a broadcast of Dublin First Baptist Church, Pastor Cameron McGill in Dublin, North Carolina. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist Church and the Lake Church to hear from God's Word. simple message this morning simply entitled, It's Time. It's Time. You're probably looking at your watch wondering, what time is it? Well, it's time. And I would submit to you, never, never has there been such a time as this. A story just came to mind. I wish it had come to mind earlier. But it just came to mind. You've heard it. Some of you have. You've been here long. It's a story about the elderly couple. They'd been married for 65 years. And they had a morning tradition. They would lay there in the bed until they heard the clock strike six times. And they knew when it struck exactly six times, it was time to get up. Go make their cup of coffee, go sit out in the front room, do their devotions, just spend time together. That was their tradition, everyday thing. Set your clock by. On this one particular morning, there was a little hitch. Not sure why or how, exactly what happened, but something got into that clock. And that old grandfather clock out there in the hallway just outside the bedroom. It got to gong and away, go boom, go boom, go boom. And it just kept on coming and going and, and they listened and it went right on by six and seven and eight and that clock struck 18 times. Little lady looked over to her husband said, it's time to get up. It ain't never been this late before. Friend, can I tell you, when we read this text, I want to remind you, it has never been this late before. Romans 13, verse number 11, Paul writes, Remember to the church. Now, if you say to somebody, get up, wake up, what does that mean? Well, there's, a, there's an understanding that you're talking to somebody that's not up yet. You're talking to somebody that's asleep. You're talking to somebody that it's time that they get up from their slumber. And Paul writes, and that knowing the time, that it is now high time. In other words, it is past due to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. It's nearer than ever before. The night is far spent. The day is now at hand. It's a picture of the sun coming up. I don't like to be in the bed when the sun comes up. Makes me feel awful. I don't want to miss anything. The night far spent. It's gone. The day is at hand. So let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the whole armor of light. By the way, sometimes the works of darkness is not just necessarily perpetual sin. It's just keeping our light hidden under a bushel, right? Let us walk honestly as in the day. Not in riding and drunkenness. Not in chambering and wantonness. Not in strife and envying. But put ye on the the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Maybe this morning it was not easy for you to get up. Maybe this morning it was not easy for somebody in your house to get up. Right? And maybe you had to holler down the hall. Get up. We're leaving here in 30 minutes. Get up. We're going out the door in 20 minutes. Get up in 10 minutes. The car's leaving the driveway. 
with or without you, that's a dangerous thing to say. Sometimes they say, y'all go ahead, you know. And then you get down to it and you say, come on, come on, come on. We're going to be late. It's time. It's time. It's time. When we read this text, we understand that Paul is saying some 2,000 years ago, it's time. And for every single day, for over 2,000 years, we have heard the call of the apostles and the prophets. It's time. It's time. It's time. When I I began preparing and thinking through this message and trying to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit as to what we needed today, I read through this passage over and over again, and, and for some reason God took me from Romans 13 back to Luke chapter number 1. And I began thinking about the visit between Mary and Elizabeth. It's one of my favorite passages in the Scripture because sometimes... The Bible's kind of fancy. And sometimes the Bible uses big words that i got to study. And sometimes the Bible gets a little complicated. Oh, but sometimes it's just real plain and real clear. So here it is. Mary has been told by the angel that she's going to give birth. And she argued and she said, I can't give birth. I do not know a man. She said, oh, or the angel said, oh, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and you shall give birth. You shall conceive and give birth to the Son of God. Pretty good stuff. Well, the first thing she began thinking, I've got to go tell somebody. I've got to go talk to somebody. Can I tell you, I don't know much about pregnant women, but I do know this. They like to get together and talk. They get, like to get together and compare notes. They like to get together and see whose feet are the most swelled. I mean, they like to get with somebody that's going through the same thing. So Mary made the journey to Elizabeth's house. This is where it gets good. Now think about this. Mary came and she rapped at the door. And as she entered the house, she greeted Elizabeth. We don't know exactly what she said. She might have said shalom. She might have said howdy. I don't know. But she said something. And before Elizabeth could utter a word, the baby, John the Baptist, that was in her womb, began leaping for joy at the very sound of the voice of his Savior. Now that's good stuff. I mean, that'll excite you. Whenever we would go for those ultrasounds when Tiffany was expecting, we would go in and it was really good and neat to look in there and to watch those babies and, and how they'd move around and how they would respond to your touch and respond to sound and all of those things. And all I can think about is John the Baptist, I mean, having a prenatal passion party there because he's heard the voice of the mother of his Lord and Savior. But then I begin thinking, what is it, Brother Tommy, that got this little baby in the womb so very excited? And I came up with two things. First of all, I believe the baby John was so excited because he knew that Jesus was getting ready to make an appearance. That Jesus was soon to be on the scene. That Jesus was coming and that Jesus was coming soon. That's enough to make you excited right then and there. And John was excited. I believe John somehow knew, somehow knew, even before he was born, that the life that was getting ready to come would radically change the face of all humanity for all eternity. That's good stuff right there in and of itself, but there's more. Because not only do I believe that John was excited because of Jesus' soon coming... I believe John was also excited because he knew 
that his purpose, that his role in this whole thing was to be the forerunner of Jesus, was to pave the way. He knew that it would be him that would introduce Jesus out by the riverside. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He knew that God had charged him with such a responsibility to be the one to go and preach, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that he would be charged with the responsibility to go and to let the world know that Jesus was on his way. Well, here we are. 2,000 years later, reading a passage about waking up, about stirring alive, And maybe you're thinking, well, you know what? I need some motivation. I need to know why I ought to be excited about this gospel thing. Well, I'll give you two reasons originating in the womb of Elizabeth. Number one, Jesus is coming and he's coming soon. Number two, church, God has charged you and he has charged me to go and to be the forerunner of Christ to make the announcement that he's coming and to let the world know, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As I prayed this week from afar, I was thinking about the next year. I was thinking about some goals. I was thinking about some vision. I was thinking about all of the things that I believe God would have me to bring before you in the way of the preached word. And these two words kept coming to mind over and over and over. Like a bad country song that you can't get out of your head. You know? Like a bad case of indigestion that take a pill if you will, but it will not go away. I mean, it just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. It's time. It's time. It's time. Those two words means, mean many different things to different people. Husbands, if you're here today and there's ever been that moment in time that your wife looked at you and said, It's time. It's time you understood there was an urgency in the matter, right? Friend, it's time. It's time. Father, as we come into a time of study of your word, I pray that we'd be brief, but we'd be bold, that you would be, uh, Lord, faithful, and that we would be focused. And God, that you would make this message so simple a child could understand and so sophisticated, Lord, the, the wisest adult in the house would be challenged. Have your will and have your way in our church and in our life. May we realize the urgency of the hour that it is time. In Jesus' name, amen. Four things by way of introduction. We've shared this story to hopefully entice your palate to realize and to encourage you and to enthuse you of your role in the announcement that Christ's return is nigh. He did come the first time, born of the Virgin Mary, laid in that that little uh, precious feeding trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He would live a perfect life, die a sinner's death, and as he went away, he said, I'll be back. And until that time, the Bible has told us to go and to be a faithful witness. Well, how do we do that? Let me give you three things, and then we'll close with the fourth. Number one, I believe that you and I, as we think about this subject, that it's time, need to understand that we are living in a time of desperation. That we are living in a time of absolute desperation. We are living in times that are unlike anything else we've ever known. But not unlike anything that the Word of God has ever known. The Bible gives us two examples of what to expect when the time was absolutely nigh. Number one, the Bible says that it would be in the days of Noah. Have you ever thought about the parallels that we have with Noah? Noah was charged with two things. Build a boat, preach the gospel. Build a boat, 
Warn people of impending wrath. Build a boat. Tell people about judgment. The fact of the matter is, the Bible tells us that we're to do two things. Matthew 16, build a church. Build a church. Build a church. Upon the solid foundation, the rock, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, to go and to tell the world, to be a faithful witness. And we need to understand that we are living in those times just like the days of Noah and there's great desperation. Now let me tell you, you might add another D to the outline and that is discouragement. It gets discouraging when you're constantly telling people about Jesus and it's as if they really don't care. Noah would preach and Noah would build for a hundred years and no one save his family would be on that ship and on that ark on the last day. We also find in 2 Timothy 3 and 4 a picture of the last days, perilous times that would come. It sounds like the 6 o'clock news, but when we read those times and those times of desperation, Paul says to Timothy, not only will there be societal desperation, but there will be a spiritual desperation. Therefore, Timothy, do not grow grow weary in well-doing. Make sure that you are being in season and out of season, faithful to the Word of God, preaching the Word, preaching the Word, preaching the Word. So what do we need to do? What do we need to be passionate about? What do we need to be desperate about? Preaching the Word. Let me think about this and just share with you two things. Number one, there's a desperation when it comes to the earthly conditions in which we are living. There's never been a time that things are like they are. Did you know that? Well, the Bible said that things would get worse and worse and worse. And we look back and say, you know what? Things were a lot better when I was younger. The Bible said it would be that way. Well, you know, things were just totally different. Well, the Bible said it would be that way. So understand this is all part of the fulfilling of the New Testament promises. We see the prophecy in the Old Testament leading up to Christ, so very accurate. We see the New Testament promises leading up to Christ, again, so very accurate. There's an earthly condition that things will grow worse and worse. But secondly, there are also eternal consequences. When we think about being desperate, we understand that there's going to come a time that the gospel will no longer be able to penetrate the heart, that the gospel will no longer be able to be preached. We understand that there's coming a time where Christ himself will rapture and will rescue rescue his church. Think about what what Noah's responsibility was. He had to build a boat. Remember how to go for wood. You ever built anything out of gopher wood? I don't know what gopher wood is. But he had to build a boat out of gopher wood. He had to gather the animals two by two, put them on the boat. He had to make provision for those animals. He had to make sure he had enough food. He had to make provisions for his own family. He had to make sure he was able to sustain life within that boat. I mean, Noah had some tremendous responsibilities, but there were two things that were not Noah's to do. Number one, bring the rain. God had it in his own timing when the rain would begin. Noah wasn't sure of that day. Noah didn't know when to expect it. In fact, get this, y'all. Noah had never seen rain before. Right? I mean, the land had never known rain. Can you imagine? You said, well, it was a foreign thing. Rain did not come from heaven. It literally would come up out of the ground like dew, and that kept everything moist and watered and fertile. But they had never seen rain. So Noah was going around trying to warn people about something they knew nothing about. Friend, we are sharing a gospel that the masses know nothing about. We are telling people about impending judgment that the masses know nothing about. And they're saying, what is he talking about? What is she talking about? This is foreign to me. We're in good company. We also know that Noah was not charged with closing the door. Noah was not charged with closing the door. God brought the rain. God closed the door. One of these days, friend, judgment is going to fall. I'm not the prophet of gloom and doom. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And the opportunity to be saved 
will be over. The door will be closed, the door of opportunity. There was not one person floating in the water that looked at that ship and that boat and thought to themselves, I'm glad I'm not on it. Everyone wished they'd have been on it. And there's going to come a day in judgment that every person is going to say, if only I would have gotten on the good ship grace. If only I would have experienced salvation before it was too late. If only I'd have got on before the door was closed. You see, there is a time of desperation. And I'm not just talking about what we see and what we hear and what we're experiencing, but those things that are to come. And they are eternal. That, you know, I think about, um, I don't like to watch hockey. It doesn't make any sense to me. I went to a fight one time and right in the middle of it, a hockey match broke out. But anyway, but in a, in a hockey match, I do know this much about it. Uh, in a hockey match that if you get in trouble, they put you in the penalty box. But it is not forever, right? You sit in there with, with, and, and you, you stare at people with no teeth and you're making faces. And then finally, they tell you, okay, you can get out of the penalty box. Hell is not a penalty box. Eternity is forever and ever and ever and ever. A million days and a million years, and it's yet just begun. There is a time of desperation. I am not trying to be melodramatic this morning, but if we get to the point that we realize, that we realize that what we do as a church, whether we stay in slumber or whether we rise and wake up, literally will make the difference not only in what's going on in the world in which we live, but it will make a difference in all of eternity for people who are lost without crying. You ever wondered why there is a church? You ever wondered what the purpose of the church is? And, and I'm evolving. Let me tell you this. For, for years and years and years as your pastor here, my goal was to create a really good church for people who were looking for a really good church. Does that make sense? Just like opening a restaurant or any other business, I wanted to develop a great product that would attract people, that people would come here because we had a good product. Yes, maybe even better than somebody else's product. And, and glory to God, when they got in here and they got a hold of our product and our product got a hold of them, maybe, just maybe, they'd get saved. But I realized that our job is not just to create a good product, but to go and to let the people know that we interact with on a daily basis, that there is a God who loved them, that, that, that loves them, but there is a day coming that the opportunities of salvation, the opportunities of grace will be behind it. This is a time of desperation, number two. A time of desperation calls for a time of dedication. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, one verse. We don't have time to get into this whole text. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable. And by the way, Therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, I always go back a little bit and figure out what it's there for. Paul has just talked about death and about the grave and about immortality and mortality. You know that passage? And Paul says, therefore, since there is a death, therefore, since there is an eternity, therefore, since there is an immortal coming, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor is not in vain in the church. Don't you know that Noah felt like his labor was in vain? You know, I mean, day after day after day preaching the gospel and nobody and nobody and nobody coming to hear and nobody following through as a believer. But he was nonetheless dedicated. Are we dedicated? Now, this is where I just really want to let the rubber meet the road a little bit. Think about what we think about being a dedicated Christian, okay? If I were to ask you, are you a dedicated Christian? You would probably say, yes, I attend church. 
In fact, 50 years ago, a person was considered a regular attender of church if they were there once a week. 20 years ago, they were considered a regular attender of church if they were there, um, I'm sorry, if they were there three times a week, then it was two times a week, then it was one time a week. Now a person's considered a regular attender of church if they come to church once a month. People consider themselves regular. So, so we have an idea. So what is it to be dedicated? You say, well, I come to church, therefore I am a dedicated Christian. Well, I sing in the choir, I serve in this capacity, I teach a class, I, I give my tithes, I, I volunteer, I, I keep the nursery, I do all these things. Therefore, I am a dedicated Christian. See, there's a difference in being a faithful member of the church and a faithful member of God's army. There's a great difference. And may I say to you that being a faithful member of the church sometimes offers a really good substitute for being a faithful part of God's army, right? Right? Can I tell you, as a pastor, it's easier being a pastor and a preacher than it is being a New Testament minister of the gospel. It's just easier. It's easier to fit into a box that man would make and say success is this. Success is so many baptisms. Success is so many new additions. Success is such a budget. Success is, is such an attendance. All these things. But ultimately, success for the believer is leading other people to become Believers. And that involves two things. Number one, the lordship of Christ. Romans 13, 11 in our text this morning, remember. And that knowing this, it is now high time to awake out of slumber. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Think about this, friend. Is Christ truly Lord of our life? Or is he just an advisor to life stuff? Is he truly our king and our creator? Or is he just another part of our Menagerie of life. What does it look like to live under the Lordship of Christ? Now, don't make it more complicated and unachievable than it really is. It means that I allow Him to direct my steps, Proverbs 3. It means that I trust Him for all of my needs. It means that I'm going to commit all of my ways to Him. It means that I come to the point that I'm not trying to serve Him based on my credentials, my desires but just totally submitted and surrendered to Him. And you say, well, preacher, I wish I could be like you. Sound like you've got it going on. I struggle every single day. I struggle every single hour. The Bible says there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends are of the ways of death. And this is talking about a person that's trying to please God and trying to serve God. Sometimes we try so hard that we fail miserably when we just need to submit and surrender and just let go. No pretense, no secondary motives, no reasons. What I do, I do for the glory of God. No questions asked. I just want to please Him. And let me say to you, if you get to that point, it's not going to make everybody happy. It's not going to make people happy who want their religious life to fit into the box that they have constructed themselves. But it is going to please the Father who will one day say this, Well done, good and faithful Christian. Is that what he said? Well done, good and faithful Baptist. Well done, good and faithful church. Well done, good and faithful steward or, or servant. Listen, one who has handled the stuff well. What is the stuff? It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that radically changes lives. The Lordship of Christ. Number two, to be dedicated, it's also about the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment, day by day. 
The Holy Spirit draws you. The Holy Spirit directs you. The Holy Spirit delivers you. The Holy Spirit absolutely will do a work. And you listen, I'm afraid that so many Christians, I heard a preacher say this one time, makes good sense. They've been to Calvary for salvation, but they've never been to Pentecost for power. Now think on this. Very little was done between the time Jesus died and rose again and the time he ascended. Now, there were many wonderful works that Jesus was showing himself after many infallible proofs. But the good stuff, y'all think about this, the good stuff didn't start till after Pentecost. The good stuff didn't come till the Holy Spirit of God indwelt the believers. The, the, the miracles, the greater things that Jesus promised would come after Pentecost. My question, are we truly being directed by the Holy Spirit of God? Now, don't misunderstand heard a preacher a while back was talking about different churches. And he said, well, if, you know, if you want the Holy Spirit of God, you've got to come to one of these particular denomination of churches. I don't think the Holy Spirit's real particular about denomination or what you build and looks like or anything like that. For the Holy Spirit dwells inside of the hearts and lives of believers. But may I ask you, do you ever quench the Holy Spirit of God? Remember a while back somebody said, Preacher, things got so good Sunday morning, I almost said amen. I said, bless God, go ahead, you know. If God prompts you, go ahead, live a life that is so led by the Spirit of God that it really don't matter. I mean, if it hair lips the devil, it don't bother you because you're serving the Lord. If it makes your neighbor mad, so be it. If it makes the other committee members mad, so be it. If it makes your own family mad, so be it. I'm going to be all in. Thank you, I thought I was pretty good myself. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's a lot easier not being all in. It's a lot easier being the mediocre Christian. I want to tell you, when you really put yourself out there, you know, when you really step out in uncharted territory, when you really say, listen, I'm just going to give everything I've got, I think God is well pleased when we live under the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. Maybe this week you'd pray with me and just say, God, I want to be totally surrendered and totally submitted to you. God, I want your spirit to direct my steps so much that there's absolutely no way that I can make a step to the right or to the left because I'm so in tune with your sweet, sweet spirit. Number three, and we'll close. Today is a day of desperation. Today is a time of dedication. And I believe that today has also got to be a time of demonstration. Romans 10 Verse 14, how shall they call upon them whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? That doesn't mean the preacher of the church. It means the gospel presenter, right? And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we are not demonstrating the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be many who will never, ever, ever hear. Let me give you... A little secret. We have this idea that lost people really don't want to hear the gospel because they'll be offended, they'll be mad. Some will be. But the vast majority of lost people want to hear some good news. They need some kind of hope. They need something to put their trust and faith in. Why do you think that drug addiction is an all-time high? Why do you think that gangs are an all-time high? Why do you think that relationships that run the gambit from one direction or another are at an all-time high? It's because people are looking for the gospel, but the folks that are supposed to be carrying the gospel to them are not doing it. So as the old country song says, they're out looking for love in all of the wrong places. Oh, that we would get so uh, dedicated to to demonstrate what the gospel looks like to a lost and dying world. And I mean demonstrated accurately. Accurately. 
Not that, well, if you give your heart to Jesus, everything's going to be great. I can't find that in Scripture. Oh, well, if you'll just, you know, get saved, you'll never have another problem in your whole life. I don't read that in Scripture. Or, hey, if you just go and you, you, you just kind of get saved, then, then you're going to get to go to heaven when you die, but they won't ask you to do anything. God's not going to ask you. don't expect you to do anything. Friend, can I tell you, you cannot take Christ as your Savior without also making Him your Lord. That makes sense, amen. Beautiful picture. A few years ago, I was preaching in northern Moldova. Moldova, of course, former Soviet Union, part of the north, uh, Transnistia, that area, is uh, heavily Russian. We're praying the entire country does not become heavily Russian soon. And seriously, make that a matter of, of fervent prayer. But I was preaching in this church, and I was preaching in English. You know why? Because that's the only language I know. And uh, I can say three words, Slava Boga, and uh, a couple of things. But that means praise the Lord. But anyway, I'm preaching in English, and they've got two translators, a Romanian and a Russian. I don't care what you say. In Russian, it sounds mean. But, um, so I'd preach, and the Romanian would translate what I said into Romanian. It's a beautiful language, very sweet. Very, but then Russian is very harsh and passionate. And, um, I mean, you can say gesundheit and feel like you just told somebody off. And uh, so I'm preaching, and it's English, and then it's Romanian, and then it's Russian. And then I'd preach some more in English, and then it's Romanian, and it's Russian. I'm getting a headache and thinking, man, I hope this is over soon. Um, you know, I only had one point that morning. But I just preach the gospel the best way I know how. And at the end of the service, I kind of get out of the way. And it's a very traditional church. Ladies are on this side. The men are on that side. All the women have their heads covered. And uh, they come up and they begin uh, the, the time of response. And I'm thinking, well, we get to eat when this is over. Face it, that's what we typically think at the end of church. Can I get a witness? Thank you, because the rest of y'all line. Thank you. I appreciate it. You good boy. All right. Teddy's my man over there. All right, you ready? Here we go. And all of a sudden, this lady comes down the aisle. I'm thinking... What's she doing? You know, is this like part of the Russian, you know, routine? She's going to come down and I didn't know. So I just kind of stood there and stayed out of the way. I try to do that sometimes. And as she came down and she held her hands up and she began talking in Russian. Didn't have a clue what she was saying. Didn't matter. She wasn't talking to me. Woo! And, uh, and she just kept going on and on and getting more loud and, and more passionate. So I turned to the translator and I said, what's up with this? And he said, she is repenting. Never seen that before. Never experienced that before. I almost said to him, oh, I didn't recognize that. We don't do that in America. May I say to you, sometimes we want an easy believism. But the Bible tells us that there must be repentance if we want remission. There must be repentance if we want redemption. There must be repentance if we want a relationship. It's not about coming to God and saying, God, I'm going to give you all my bad stuff that I want to give you. I'm going to hang on to a few other things. And when this day is over, I want all of your good stuff. It's not salvation based on our terms. So what does it look like to demonstrate the gospel? Three things. Number one, it's a demonstration of purity. We cannot be an example of the believers, Paul said to Timothy, without exemplifying the believers' word and conversation and charity and faith and spirit and impurity. It's about having a pure life. And this does not mean we're perfect. If it's based on our perfection for someone else to come to Christ, they will never come to Christ. However, it's not based on our perfection. It's based on His perfection. It is not about us providing such a good picture of something that would entice people. But it's about living a faithful and a consistent life that people see and say there's something to that. There's something to that. I've said this before, but anytime I ever go to a car dealership and I'm looking at a car, I always ask the salesman, what kind of car does he drive? Because if he's selling Fords and he drives a Chevrolet, there's something wrong. Just my take on it. And uh, if we're out trying to share the gospel... But yet we're not living by the gospel. 
If we're telling other people what they need, yet we're not living as though we are totally dependent upon it ourselves, then isn't that kind of hypocritical? And you say, purity, I know what you're talking about, preacher. You, you get them teenagers, they need to hear that. I'm not just talking about sexual purity. But I'm talking about a pure heart and a pure mind and, and then a pure life. Let me, let me just give you this real quick. I know our time's about, about done, but here it is. Sometimes we try to step to pure living without the purity of our heart and without the purity of our minds. Here's what we say. Okay, I'm a Christian. I've got to live a pure life. So I've got to make sure everything on the external of my life is pure. Right? It's like washing the outside of your car and calling it clean. Let's open the door and look and see what's on the inside, right? What is that commercial? You're not fully clean unless you're zestfully clean or something like that. All right? So it's not about putting on a charade. It's not trying to, trying to look a certain way, you know? But it's saying, okay, God, I need it to begin with my mind. I need to make sure that I'm feeding my mind things that are pure. I need to make sure I'm blocking my mind from things that are not pure. I'm making sure that I'm feeding my mind on things that are wholesome and that will, and that will bless me and benefit me. God, I want to have a pure mind. God, I want to have a pure heart. I want to have your heart, Ezekiel. I want to have a heart that is, is sensitive not calloused. One that is compassionate, not judgmental. God, I want to have a, a heart that is pure, that I sense your spirit every day and I, I see things from your perspective. And, and God, that my heart be in tune with your heart like the heart transplant I talked about last week. All right. And then our minds are pure. Our hearts are pure. And then you know what? When we get to step three, trying to have a pure life becomes so very easy compared to if without the step one and two being followed. You ever put anything together and try to jump to the last step? It don't work out real well, right? You see, purity begins in the mind. Purity begins in the heart. Then it is translated out into our lives. And you know what? It becomes so much easier. Listen, don't miss this. It becomes so much easier sharing the gospel when you're not doing so with such a guilty conscience. You know, it's hard, you know? I was in a conversation and everybody was talking about you know, working out and the diets they were in. And, and I'm thinking, a year ago, I'd have made a much, much better conversationalist because right now I'm just kind of trying to stay out of the conversation because I really don't want in on it, you know. We get to the point that we say, I, I, just, I, I know I need to share the gospel, but preacher, there's things in my life and I'm so ashamed and I feel so hypocritical sharing the gospel. Well, then take care of those things so that when you share the gospel, in fact, the Bible says, you know the story, you know about the, the speck and the beam. Get the beam out of your eyes so that you can help your brother with his speck. Number two, we demonstrate his purity. Number two, we demonstrate his passion. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Do you so love the world? Do you so love the Savior? What are you passionate about? If I were to ask you today, what are you truly passionate about? You'd probably tell me about your sports and your, and your hobbies and your family and your relationship and your business and all of the things that you're passionate about. But are you truly passionate about the gospel. I'm not just talking about passionate that one day I'm going to go to heaven. You know, I'm amazed when I hear gospel singing and, and people, you know, they start singing about heaven and, and being up there with grandma, sitting around the throne of God in her rocking chair or whatever. And man, people get to shouting and waving their hankies and glory, hallelujah. But listen, what we need to get passionate about are the very thing that heaven's passionate about. You know what they're passionate about? When lost people become saved people, listen, they have a party then and there on the spot. I imagine angels love to party. Angels love to worship because they don't understand this whole thing of salvation. So when a lost person gets saved and they say, strike up the band, it's time for another party, the angels truly rejoice. That needs to be our passion. I mean, it really does. I, that's the one thing that I long for in my life, in my ministry, and in the ministry of our church is that we get to the point that on Sunday mornings, somebody brings somebody and say, preacher, 
This is him. This is the guy that I led to Christ Thursday at work. You tell him about it. And that fellow steps up and starts witnessing about how good God's been and how faithful God's been. That's glory in the church. Our passion. Number three, our purpose. What was Christ's purpose? The Bible says, for he came, two purposes, to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, if that's his purpose, ultimately that needs to be our purpose. Can I give you this and we're done? 42 years old, been in the ministry for 23 years or however long, been preaching uh, for 27 years. I've never felt such urgency when it comes to the gospel as I do right now. Maybe it's because I hung out with David Platt a little bit this week. I don't know. But anyway, and I'm not name dropping. I just thought it was a really cool experience. But I think I see this been coming for a while. Now, here's my challenge, y'all. My challenge is saying, okay, I'm going to maintain, and you know me, I'm just going to tell it how it is. I'm not going to pull any punches that I'm going to maintain a position as a pastor of a traditional church that I love dearly. Not get frustrated when we're not as evangelistic. Not get frustrated when we're not the soul-winning church that we need to be, but just keep on being an example because I realize that you're not ever going to be a soul-winning church until I'm truly a soul-winning pastor. And move us into a transition time where, where truly when we think about a bigger building, it's not about, well, I want this kind of building or I want that kind of building or well, what kind of pews are we going to have or what's the lighting going to be like? But ultimately, we need a bigger building just so we can get lost people in there so lost people can, can, can get saved. Where everything about what we do as a church when it comes to our budget and when it comes to our buildings and when it comes to our programs and when it comes to our vision, everything revolves around making a difference and standing in the gap between heaven and hell. Why? Because it is high time that we wake up from our slumber as we close. We talked about the time of desperation and the time of dedication, the time of demonstration, but there's one more time that we certainly wouldn't neglect, and that is the time of decision. The time of decision. When Paul said, it is now high time. He knew that that message would be preached for 2,000 years. And every time that message is preached, it's preached to individuals who will make a decision whether they will stay asleep or whether they will get up. I want to tell you, I get aggravated. We've got four kids and, and none of them took after me. Now, Tiffany likes to get up too, but I don't mean it. But I am a morning guy. I mean, you know, I've been so tickled and so thrilled. Some people moved in down the street from us and they have roosters. <laughs> I just think that is so cool. I like to get up and just go out in the morning and hear the roosters saying, Get up, y'all! That's what they're saying in roosterese, right? It makes me feel good. Honestly, it makes me feel like I'm in Moldova because they got roosters everywhere. Why? Because they do not have alarm clocks. Thank you very much. But my kids, man, they just drive me crazy because they don't just jump out of bed cheery. Now, they can stay up half the night, which I can't. Eight o'clock, bedtime. When I was growing up, when he all went off, everybody went to bed. But... I said, come on, get up. You're going to miss something. Come on, get up. You're going to miss something. How about it, church? How about it? We're good at a lot of things. I believe, I believe we are a good church for people who are looking for a good church. I dare say we're probably one of the best churches around for people who are looking for a good church. But I don't know about you, but I'm not real satisfied just with that. My goal is a year from now, 
wherever we're meeting and whatever building and whatever, that there are going to be people next year here who are lost right now, November the 20th, 2016, that on two, November the 20th, 2017, will be saved, not just because they came and visited our church and got saved, but because our church went and visited them and they got saved. One last time, if that makes sense, say amen.